This morning, we're going to be picking up in, towards the beginning of, of Acts chapter 6. We left off in, towards the beginning. Uh, we're going to be reading quite a bit today. It's a long passage, so I'll let you kind of get, um, take a minute to get situated towards the beginning of chapter 6. We're going to be reading today about a man named Stephen. I'll just be honest with you, I don't have very many slides, um, but I do have kind of a summary. I'll, I'll wait, I'll put it up in a, in a minute. Um, the story of this man, as far as the amount of time of his life that we get told about, is very small. It's a pretty short story, uh, but it takes some time to read. It's, it's powerful. This guy goes on trial and basically gives this brilliant survey of, human, of Hebrew scriptures to authorities on Hebrew scriptures, shining a light as Jesus as a Messiah, as the Messiah, and shining the light back on those accusing him and attacking him as rejecting the Messiah and equating those people as being those people who are rejecting God. So this has a quick reference of, of where we are in Acts. Remember, we're in the early days of the Christian church. Jesus has left, but the Holy Spirit is being poured out in abundance. And the number of people is growing in the thousands quickly. The number of people who claim the risen Jesus as their Messiah. But this group of people, they're still messy people and they're still figuring things out. The last couple of weeks, we have seen some of the challenges uh, that have come, even from within, whether from outright corruption, like we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, or simply figuring out how to make sure everyone is actually taken care of, that physical needs are being met, and that they're meeting them for each other. Meanwhile, we've seen the mainstream Jewish leaders just get very upset by this new way of teaching and this new way of thinking, and killing Jesus, the man who started it all, didn't really seem to have any effect in squashing his message, especially when his followers are claiming that he came back to life three days after he was killed. And so far, the apostles have been opposed by the other leaders. They've been told to stop teaching, stop saying what you're saying. They've been thrown in jail, and they've been threatened. The angels let them out of jail. And so far, their, their popularity with the general public, they, they are regarded so highly that they, that has prevented them from being treated too harshly by the Sanhedrin, the people who really would like them all to be wiped out off the map. They're too popular uh, to take those drastic measures quite yet so far. And last week we read at the very beginning of chapter 6, it lists seven men in verse 5. It lists them, um, and it describes them as being of good reputation and full of the Spirit and of wisdom. They were put in charge of a specific need that arose, uh, of Hellenist widows not receiving food in the daily distribution of food. Mike brought us through that passage last week. One of the men listed, though, one of those seven, is Stephen. He's described as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. It's a pretty good way to be known. And he even you know, is singled out of the seven, and we find out as we keep reading. But verse 7, uh, verse seven of chapter 6 gives us a summary statement of how effective the apostles were overall before it zooms in on Stephen to tell his story in more detail. And verse 7 says this, The word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. 
That's the verse we left off last week. How cool is it that even some of the priests, many of the priests, not just some, but many of the priests were coming to the faith. Then as we keep reading in verse 8, we zoom in on Stephen, and again, Luke reiterates just how impressive this guy Stephen is, really. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great works and signs among the people. So it sounds like he really stood out and perhaps even drew more attention out of those seven. He was apparently drawing more attention by what, simply what he was doing, not by asking for attention, just by simply doing miraculous things. I'll go ahead and put this slide. is really just a summary of the whole uh, passage that we're going to read. So I'm not going to read that out loud. I figured if you are one of those people who kind of slip in and out of attention throughout the sermon, that's okay. Uh, I'm, I'm like that too. I get it. Uh, so as we're reading, I, I want you to try to you know, not tune out because we're going to read a lot of scripture, but this is at least kind of a condensed summary. So if nothing else, hopefully you can walk away with an idea of what happens in these chapters. All right, so I'm going to keep reading a little bit and starting in verse 9. It says, But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and were arguing with Stephen. But they were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. (laughs) So to pause here just for a minute, this particular group, in my translation it calls them the freedmen, um, most likely made up of Greek-speaking Jews who had been freed from slavery and whose influence in the dispersion, the Jewish dispersion or the, the scattering of Jews throughout the world, it describes them as being from as far away as Egypt and northern Africa to more f- further east to where we would call modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. So this, this influence of this group is, is pretty widespread beyond just the walls of Jerusalem and the temple. And it really sounds like they were perhaps unaccustomed to losing debates or to not winning arguments. They didn't like having this opponent who they were unable to overcome when it comes down to genuine theological debate. They were unable to oppose the wisdom and the spirit by whom Stephen was speaking. Because he was speaking, not with his own wisdom, but with the wisdom and through the spirit of Christ himself. Nobody can win an argument with God. So they get frustrated. And instead of realizing that he is speaking with the wisdom that comes from God, they resort to evil, deceptive tactics in order to try to wrongfully convict him. Verse 11 says, They secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him, dragged him away, and brought him to the Sanhedrin. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man never ceases speaking words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus, the Nazarene, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. None of those last things are true, but these are the accusations they're bringing against him. This deceit and slander brings to mind very similar tactics that were used against Jesus himself during his trial and his wrongful execution. Referencing Jesus, they're 
accusations ring. They reference things that Jesus did say about the temple, but kind of twist them, twist what he actually said. Jesus used the temple once as an analogy to make a reference to his own death and resurrection, saying they will destroy this temple, referring to his own body, and I'll rebuild it in three days. He also predicts in a couple other places, uh, like in Mark 13, 1 and 2, he makes a reference to the future destruction of the temple that happens in A.D. 70. But in neither case is Jesus threatening to destroy the temple. He's rather predicting that the Jews will will be destroying his own body and then allowing the, the temple to be destroyed. But if you can imagine, if Stephen was repeating such teachings from Jesus, it's not hard to see how they could be deliberately misconstrued as threats against the temple and as an assault on Moses and on the law and their traditions and by extension, you know, an overt rebellion against the very ways of God. He's trying to overturn the temple and turn us all into wicked people from within. Of course, if you look carefully at anything Jesus ever taught, he never claimed to overturn Moses or the law, uh, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its full fruition, himself to be a fulfillment of God's covenant with Moses. (laughs) Speaking of Moses, we get another kind of reference to Moses. In verse 15, it says, Stephen's face looks like an angel. This is language that sounds very similar to when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and comes down with his face shining. In Acts 6, uh, sorry, verse 15 says, fixing their gaze on him, they all look at him, all who are sitting in the Sanhedrin saw his face like the face of an angel. And we don't really get any more further description of, of that, what he means by that. It's unclear how literal that's meant to be taken. If his, if, if his attackers noticed anything visibly different on his face, it apparently wasn't enough to deter them from their line of questioning. It doesn't stop them. With Moses, if you look at that story, when he comes down off the mountain, he's so shiny, people are afraid to go near him. But with Stephen, they just keep grilling him with questions. So it could be that he was just very you know, calm and peaceful. It could be that his outward appearance was visibly changed, but it doesn't matter for them. They just keep asking him questions. And so getting into verse 1 of chapter 7, the high priest says to him, Are these things so? Is it so concerning these things? Are these accusations against you true? Gives him an, a, an opportunity to answer. And he doesn't really give them a yes or no answer, does he? But he does address the topic of the temple, sort of uh, indirectly, and God's presence in his response. So let's keep reading in chapter 7. He said, Hear me, brothers and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So right off the bat, he's taking them back to the beginning of Jewish history. Not all the way to creation, but to Abraham, which is like the creation of the Jewish family, because it all started, they all descend, uh, descended from Abraham. And notice the attention to God's glory appearing to Abraham. Where? Where is Abraham? Mesopotamia. Not the temple, not Jerusalem. Long before the temple or even the tabernacle was even um, thought of by the Jews, in this far distant land, it's a reminder right away that God has never really been confined to any single location. Um, Even though 
God does put a lot of emphasis on Israel's location throughout their history. It's indicative of where they are in their story, but God is never constrained to that location. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. God says to Abraham, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and settled in Haram. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his seed after him, even when he yet had no child. But God spoke in this way that his seed would be sojourners in a foreign land, referring now to Jacob and Joseph. They would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, referring to Egypt and their time there. I will myself will judge the nation to which they will be enslaved, said God, and after that they will come out and serve me in this place. He gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham was the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. I believe that's the first time patriarch, the word patriarch is used uh, in the Bible, referring to the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob who became the tribes of Israel. He's going back to the promise to Abraham that God promised a multitude of descendants, even when Abraham had none, and for a land for them to possess, even though Abraham personally didn't live to see that happen. The promise is fulfilled through his descendants after their long sojourn in Egypt. Their time in Egypt was foretold, though, to Abraham and then fulfilled through Joseph, which he then goes into in verse 9. The patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, becoming jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions, granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he appointed him governor over Egypt and all his household. I'll just pause here and say all of these are obviously references back to Genesis. And if any of these stories are not familiar to you, I encourage you to go and and read the the stories in Genesis that he's referring to. And even if you are familiar with them, kind of comparing the details that he brings out versus the details in Genesis, it's a cool, uh, it's cool to study. We don't have time to do that today, obviously, but um, all right, verse 11. Joseph is now governor over all of Egypt. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there, they were removed to Shechem and placed into the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So this is, he's recounting the story, very condensed. It's this epic story. But the reason he's bringing this up is that the story of Joseph, he's presenting this story as being analogous to 
the story of Jesus. He was rejected by his own brothers out of jealousy. The story of Joseph is a story of betrayal and tragedy, and yet it's also the story of the beginning of redemption for his whole family. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, bringing us closer to Moses here. But as the time of the promise was drawing near, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until another king arose over Egypt who did not know about Joseph. They fell out of favor with Egypt. It was he who deceitfully took advantage of our family and mistreated our fathers to set their infants outside so they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, father's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was powerful in words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his heart to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. When he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took justice for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting them salvation through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you treating one another unjustly? But the one who was treating his neighbor unjustly pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this remark, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he was the father of two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was marveling at the sight, and he approached to look more closely. As he approached, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear, would not dare to look. But the Lord said to him, Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans. I have come down to deliver them. Come now and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, doing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who, in the congregation of the wilderness, was with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but rejected him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, 
Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. At that time, they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you present me with slain beasts and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rompha. These are just other gods of other cultures around them. The images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. And we're coming now to David from Moses. There's a little bit of a transition here. And there's a lot about Moses because they're attacking him and saying, well, you're going against Moses. And he goes, let me tell you about Moses. I know his whole story. I know him better than you. Now let's get on to David. Verse 46, David found favor in the sight of God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. David wants to build God a temple, a house. But Solomon built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my rest? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men, Stephen is now addressing his the court, (laughs) you men, stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He's lumping them in with everyone who resisted God in the history of Israel. Verse 52, and which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. The people who were telling you that Jesus was coming. You rejected and killed them. And then you became the betrayers and murderers of that righteous one. The betrayers and murderers you have now become. And you received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not observe it. Again, the accusations against Stephen centered around the temple and on Moses. So a lot of his response centered on the temple, the tabernacle, and Moses. But ultimately, he's giving them the big picture of how they fit into the pattern of Israel's rejection of God and his prophets and trying to give them the big picture of what they're missing, what they're not seeing. That Israel has consistently misjudged and rejected Yahweh's chosen leaders and messengers, and in doing so, are essentially fighting against Yahweh. Rejecting Jesus as the Messiah is the ultimate example of continuing this pattern. The religious leaders had accused Stephen, like they accused Jesus, of 
threatening the temple. The temple being that, that permanent, it was in their heads, the permanent forever place that was the successor to the tabernacle. Yahweh had given them instructions to build that tabernacle. It kept them safe through the wilderness. And now this was that expression of that in their city. You look at Exodus 26. But Stephen reminds them that by really in their hearts, in their minds, they're turning to tabernacles of other gods, just like their fathers did in the past. Israel has consistently failed to respond in faith to the one true God who is present and has been present in their midst the whole time. He calls them stiff-necked people, which are words that Yahweh has used against his own people, against the wilderness generation particularly. In Exodus 32 and 33, Stephen uses that same language against his accusers, turning the full force of the implications of Israel's history and Yahweh's words against Israel through his prophets against his accusers. As you can imagine, none of this goes over well with the leaders. And they choose, even though they know, they know he's innocent. They're frustrated with him, they're annoyed with him, but they know he hasn't done anything deserving of death, and yet they choose to kill him anyway. They murder this innocent man. They're blinded by their jealousy and fury. It says in uh, verse 54, Now when they heard this, they became furious. In their hearts. They begin gnashing their teeth at him. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Can you imagine? These people are so mad at him, they're ready to kill him. And he goes, Jesus, he's up there with God. That's the last thing they want to hear. They're upset that they're even, he's even claiming he rose and is alive. He's saying that to actually be seeing him. Crying out with a loud voice, it says in verse 57, they covered their ears, they don't want to hear it. They rushed at him with one accord. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Does that sound familiar at all? <laughs> now, I'm just going to keep reading a couple verses into chapter 8 because it kind of is the end of the story. Now, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He was delivering them into prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. So why does Luke give us this story? Luke has just set up 
now his account of the church's witness. We're about to expand beyond Jerusalem. So far up until this chapter, we've been pretty constrained to Jerusalem, and even the, the stage has been pretty closely centered around the temple. Now we've had these two men now at the end who are at this point opposites. You have Stephen and Saul. Saul, who is the zealous enemy of the church in Acts um, 7.58 is what we just read. And Stephen, who is a Christ follower, who's just laid down his life as a witness to Jesus, literally witnessing about Jesus as he's breathing his last and praying for forgiveness for his enemies. In very different ways, both men are active and are instrumental in motivating the church's growth. And we'll see God transform Saul's life pretty miraculously in the coming chapters. But here, the story of Saul and the events following Stephen's death here, we've been given a backdrop for the church and Saul's later changed life. This is a really important to see how far Saul came and understand this, the weight of his conversion Understand that he was really stoked that they got this guy, who we can see and read about as being innocent and, all, and wanting to follow Jesus. He was like, yeah, got him. One down, a few thousand to go, and we'll be rid of this. <laughs> we'll just throw them all in prison, and we'll, we'll get back to normal, back to worshiping God like we know how. But aside from understanding this story, in its context, and kind of, you know, that's my summary up on the screen, um, which that is, there's value in simply understanding what happened. Um, but is there any other kind of application or encouragement that can be had from this story? Now, for one thing, we can be encouraged, I think, to see how even in the most vulnerable and defenseless infancy of the church, we see that Nothing can stop the gospel, no matter what the word of God is spreading. In fact, from the beginning of where we read today in chapter 6, verse 7, says the word of God kept on spreading. The number of disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. That's where the priests, even many priests, were coming to the faith. Then we read about Stephen and everything that happens to him. And then the last verse I read is in chapter 8, verse 4. It says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. So we see the, the word being scattered and spread. Before and after Stephen's story, the word of God is spreading. And that's true for everyone's story. In order for the word to keep spreading, the people were spread out too. They were kind of forced out from temple from Jerusalem. This marks an important transition, an important milestone that we've gotten to in this outward expansion of the church. We can also learn, certainly personally, from Stephen's example and his experience. As grim and disturbing as it is that they would kill an innocent man, it's amazing to see the peace and humility in Stephen and how unflinching he was in the face of his accusers, humble and not rebellious, not trying to add to the trouble that he was given, that was on him, but faithfully willing to answer them with boldness and confidence, not ashamed of the gospel. 
his whole trial and his whole and even his execution becomes yet another witness for Christ. So rather than his death accomplishing anything against Christ, he himself then bears literal visual witness to seeing the resurrected Jesus while he's being killed for it. If there was ever a moment for him to turn back and say, never mind, I don't believe in Jesus, that would have been it. And yet he was so sure. And, and Jesus made sure he was sure, saying, here I am, basically. That's just, it's just so cool. Stephen, it's a tragic story because he, he's the first what we call martyr of the church, the first to be killed for proclaiming his faith in Jesus. He certainly wasn't the last. Now, I don't think any of us in this room has to worry about being stoned to death for professing faith in Jesus. But we should still have all the more such unwavering willingness to speak up for him. The worst that can happen to us is is a lot less worse than what happened to Stephen. Even if it is scary, even if the consequences could be potentially life-changing, even if not life-ending, but even if it were life-ending, if that's what God is, is calling us to do. Certainly never seeking out danger or seeking out Uh, death or rebellion, but not being afraid to to follow God or to speak the truth regardless of the consequences and the reactions of those around us. One last application or encouragement from this story that I would share with you today is just to appreciate the wisdom of Stephen, who in this moment could have been so wrapped up in himself and could have given a defense-based purely on his own life. Hey, he could have listed all the good works that he'd done. He's been taking care of widows. He's been living an, living an exemplary life, teaching about Scripture. And he doesn't really do any of that. He steps back and says, whoa, guys, you are missing out on the big picture. Forget about me for a minute. Think about what you're doing. And just there's wisdom in stepping back and thinking about the bigger picture of God's plan and the big picture of God's story anytime we feel really overwhelmed by what's going on in one short you know, day or moment of our lives. When our lives seem so overwhelming or so big that it's really out of our control, there's a lot that's out of our control, but it can be encouraging actually to remember how small we are, how small our lives are, and that it helps us realize how powerful God is how willing and able he is to take care of us, even when our life circumstances and from our perspective, it might sometimes feel like he's abandoned us. But that is never the case. Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin, it's a big picture look at how God had been working with his people from Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus. And now to the apostles and Stephen. He showed how God had chosen and blessed and delivered and guided his people, but also how they had in turn rebelled and rejected and resisted him time after time again. And finally, bringing their attention to the betrayal and murder of Jesus at their own hands. That's another thing. None of us have to actually speak face-to-face with the people who murdered Jesus. He's speaking To at least some of them, he's confronting Jesus as murderers. He challenges them to repent, even now, to believe in Jesus. 
In doing so, uh, Stephen demonstrates an understanding of scriptures and how all of the Old Testament scripture points to Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, and the fulfillment of all of God's purposes for his covenant people. So the core of Stephen's message is the same uh, message that we're all here gathered to um, proclaim and to celebrate together today, just to praise God for his glorious works and many gifts. Whether we are looking at the big picture of what God's done throughout human history or thinking about the small details of every joy and every struggle that we go to, because we do have to, we can't be always looking at the big picture every moment of every day. We have to be present too and actually think about what's right in front of us. No matter what, we ought to praise God for giving us life and for promising to go through it with us together. So let us always extend every breath to proclaim God's goodness, to praise Him and to spread the news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what our circumstances are, whether it's from the mountaintops of our lives and we're feeling great, or whether we're feeling crushed by oppressive and destructive consequences of sin, whether we've brought it on ourselves and our own sin, or it's totally out of our control and, you know, other people against us. Let us walk in Stephen's example of courage and compassion and commitment to the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you today to fill us like you did Stephen with your spirit and wisdom. Let us follow the example of Stephen being such a faithful servant and witness, willing to serve you even in um, whatever menial task was needed, just to make sure that your people were taken care of. The things that we uh, constantly are deeming worthless or people who we deem worthless, you are constantly redeeming as miraculous and wonderful and you want to use us to be a part of that. Open our eyes to what you are doing around us. Grant us the grace and love and humility to proclaim the gospel with boldness and with clarity and understanding to see your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again for our justification, redeeming those of us who may at times feel completely unredeemable. Show us, Jesus, the peace and the joy that surpasses all understanding, even and especially in the midst of trials and tribulations and challenges. We do ask that you bring us peace, that you bless us, you keep us. Let your face shine upon us and let us praise you for all of your gracious gifts that you give to us. Let us bask in those mercies, your favor and your peace. In Jesus' name I pray.